0: Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here today and, and to learn more about you and more about your word. Lord, we ask that you'll help us to, to really consider what is being said today and, and in, in coming weeks about the doctrines of grace. And we ask that you'll help it to be something that not will, will not only stimulate us intellectually, but that would, it would motivate us to more of a, a committed love and honor for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so, doctrines of grace. This has always been one of my favorite topics. And the reason is, well, at first it did stimulate me intellectually uh, when I first learned it. But the more I learned about the doctrines of grace, the more I realized that the God that I knew when growing up is not the God of the Bible. And when I learned that God of the Bible, it was a whole different story. So, let's start off with some questions. Is God sovereign? What does it mean to be sovereign? You don't have to answer that. It's kind of rhetorical. But I do want you to to respond at some point. So, when you were converted, was it because God made a decision... I'm sorry, was it because you made a decision to accept God? or was it because God made a decision to accept you? Which one of those two views comports with the idea of sovereignty? Yes. Yep. So, when, when Christ was arrested and subsequently died on the cross, was that an unfortunate event perpetrated by evil men outside of God's control? or was Christ's arrest and death arrest and death planned and executed by God himself I can see we already have calvinists in the room okay when adam sinned did god say well that didn't go very well let's go to plan b or was it part of his ultimate plan for humanity Are suffering, evil, and disaster outside of God's control? Or does God allow suffering and evil as part of his overall plan? Okay, so you see how we're we're trying to segregate how these work into the idea of sovereignty. So the answers to these questions depend on how you view God. His control, his power, his ultimate purpose. And the answers to these questions are, uh, hinge in a large part on whether you identify as a Calvinist. R.C. Sproul once famously said that if even one electron of one atom, of one molecule, was outside of God's control, then that electron is God. Now, it's a pretty bold statement. But there's an imposing view. Now, I want to read you an expert Excerpt from a book entitled Against Calvinism. It was written by Roger Olson, who is a Baptist theologian and a professor of Christian Theology and Ethics at Baylor. And uh, Olson wrote this book called Against Calvinism in response to another book by Michael Horton called For Calvin- Calvinism. Olson writes, one day at the end of class session on Calvin, Calvin's Doctrines of God's Sovereignty, a student asked me a question I have put off considering. He asked, if it was revealed to you in a way you couldn't question or deny that the true God actually is as Calvinism says and rules as Calvinism affirms, would you still worship him? I knew the only possible answer without a moment's thought, even though I knew it would shock many people. I said no. Such a God would be a moral monster. Of course, I realize Calvinists do not think their view of God's sovereignty makes him a moral monster. But I can only conclude they have not thought it through to its log- logical conclusion or even taken sufficiently seriously the things they say about God and evil and innocent suffering in the world. Now, I read those, that passage to you for three reasons. First, I want to show you how far removed the two sides are. Second, I want you to see that even though the opposing side affirms the sovereignty of God, they don't see sovereignty in the same way we do. And lastly, I want you to consider what Dr. Olson is actually saying here. He's saying in, in no uncertain terms, that the God he worship must meet his criteria. In order to receive Dr. Olson's worship, the God must be who I say he must be. Now not all, not all people with that view uh, with that, in that system believe that. Um, I asked someone in my family. believes the Arminian uh, doctrine recently that same question and they said no I would immediately believe in Calvinism if, if that was displayed to me. So not everyone believes that. But that aside, is the God of Calvinist doctrine, as Dr. Olson says, a moral monster? Or does that conclusion just betray a misunderstanding of the doctrines? So today we're going to start our series on the Doctrines of Grace, a.k.a. Calvinism. And this will probably take about ten weeks, um, because I'm going to try to go slow. So why are the Doctrines of Grace sometimes referred to as Calvinism? Well, they were named after John Calvin, who was a 16th century theologian and reformer. The term Calvinism was not coined by Calvin or any of his followers, the term was actually intended as pejorative, and it was used by those who disagreed with him. Now we'll get into that further, but for now suffice to say that what we refer to as the five points of Calvinism are more correctly referred to as the doctrines of grace. But I will use the term inter- inter- terms interchangeably just because it's easier. <clears throat> So first, what is our goal in studying this? Is it just to accumulate a bunch of knowledge that's so you can say, you know, explain your, what you believe? Not really. The short answer is that the doctrines of grace are concerned with how God saves us. And by understanding how he saves us, we start to see his true identity and character. And when it comes right down to it, we really should know and understand how God saves us if we intend to worship Him. Is that right? But many people formulate ideas about God and how he saves based on a very superficial overview of Scripture. For instance, they read John 3:16. Everybody know John 3:16. And they conclude on that basis that God loves and is trying to save every human being. And I hope that will become obvious as we progress through this, that's not at all the case. When it comes right down to it, people tend to formulate a God that they can stomach. One that meets their own criteria of a good God. And then they interpret the Bible based on that preference, or those preferences. And these are the people that you hear saying, my God would never tell me who I can and cannot marry. At best, this is setting a pretext into which every doctrine must fit. But at worst, it's making a God in your own image. Why? Because a person's beliefs about God have no effect whatsoever on who God is. So we'd better get it right because a God of your own making can't save you any more than you can save yourself. And I, for one, don't want to stand in front of God in the end and try to explain to him why he wasn't good enough and why I had to recreate him. So let's begin briefly by looking at the opposing view to Calvinism, which is held by Dr. Olson and probably 70% of all Christians. And it is called Arminianism. I start here because I think that to grasp Calvinism, it's easier to start with that opposite viewpoint. And it's not only called Arminianism, it's also called semi-Pelagianism. Now, the why? Pelagius was a lay scholar who lived from 355 to 420 AD, so quite, quite a long time ago. He gained quite a following among those who espoused a view of God and sin that goes something like this. Adam's original sin did not taint his descendants, number one. Number two, therefore, it is possible for a Christian to live a sinless life. The absence of original sin makes that possible. Number three, God wants everyone to be saved. And the election referred to in Scripture is nothing more than prescience, which means he knew ahead of time who would choose him, and then he chose them. Number four, man is a free moral agent that freely operates outside the control of God. So that's Pelagianism in a nutshell. Now, Pelagianism was condemned by the Christian church in in the 6th century as a heresy. And it's easy to understand why. If you read your Bible, (laughs) you can see that the whole concept ignores or completely controverts huge parts of Scripture. So now, fast forward from the 6th century to the 16th century, 1,000 years, smack in the middle of the Reformation, Dutch theologian Jacobus Arminius partially resurrected Pelagianism. And I say partially because his views were not as radical as Pelagius, but they were still kind of radical. Arminius believed that Adam's sin affected all of humanity, but just not to the same extent that Calvin taught. But Arminius did not believe that man could live a sinless life. So we say it was less radical than Pelagianism. But Arminius taught that while Adam's sin did affect mankind, man was still able to see God's goodness and to respond to an offer of salvation. But he said that salvation was offered by God and that it was ultimately man's choice to whether accept or not. So because the doctrine of Arminius was a blending of Pelagianism and Calvinism, it became known as semi-Pelagianism. Now, here's a, a, just a really brief snapshot of the history of that whole controversy as stated by John Piper, and I'm just going to read his because it's pretty easy. The controversy between Arminianism and Calvinism arose in Holland in the early 1600s, Gradually, Arminius came to reject certain Calvinistic teachings. The controversy spread over all Holland, where the Reformed Church was the overwhelming majority. The Arminians drew up their creed in five articles and laid them before the state authorities of Holland in 1610 under the name Remonstrance, which was signed by 46 ministers. The official Calvinistic response came in 1619 at the Synod of Dort, which was held in, um, I'm sorry, I forgot to delete that. The Synod wrote that what has come to be known as the Canons of Dort, and these are still part of the Church Confession of the Reformed Church in America, the Christian Reformed Church, and they state the five points of Calvinism in response to the five Arminian remonstrances. So the five points were not chosen by Calvinists, As a summary of their teaching, they became they came as a response to Arminians' five points of disagreements with Calvinism. So let's get that straight. The Arminians said, here are the five areas we disagree with Calvin on. Then the Calvinists responded to each one of those points as a rebuttal. And then the Arminians labeled that response Calvinism. So it's kind of like um If, you know, the conservative and progressive, if you say you have a constitutional question, you're going to have two possible arguments or two possible outcomes. And only one of those is actually constitutional, right? But depending on which side you're on, you're going to label it either progressive or conservative. But it's still constitutional. It's kind of the same thing. Now, people who espouse the Arminian view of God believe that when Adam sinned, that that man did fall from grace, but not totally. Man was still able to see value in God and to respond to the offer of salvation without any type of miraculous work in man's heart. So, essentially, the final the the final decision rests with man. Conversely, a Calvinist believes that the fall rendered man incapable of responding to an offer of salvation. Only by a miraculous work in the heart of a man can God be valued by man. And and can man respond to the offer of salvation? Is that pretty clear? So there's more to Arminianism than that but we're going to discuss that in coming weeks. But that's the basic rationale on which everything else is built. So let's get back to Calvin and the view of the gospel that eventually became known as Calvinism. Besides being a theologian, Calvin was a pastor in Geneva, Switzerland. And Martin Luther aside, Calvin was arguably the most influential reformer his Institutes of the Christian Religion are still considered one of the greatest theological works of all time. And I don't know if you've ever had a chance to read it, but they're pretty difficult, but they're good. And they're, they're big. They're huge. So, Reformed churches like ours identify with Calvinist teaching. And the re- word Reformed refers to a doing away with all that the Roman Catholic Church had adopted, which wasn't biblical, and this included Arminianism. Instead of the Church being the final authority, we say the Scripture is. That's why out of the Reformation came sola scriptura. So let's step back for a second to recall why we're talking about this. And I'll do this from time to time because I want to make sure we're not just accumulating knowledge. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. I want to make this come to our hearts and our minds. So here it is, a clear knowledge of God and how He saves is literally the fuel that ignites and sustains affection for Him. Why? Because by understanding what He did for us, we see that He is worthy of our worship. The most important knowledge you can have about God is how he operates in the process of salvation. It will tell you more about God than anything else. Now think about it for a minute. Who are you most inclined to love and honor? A God who makes your salvation possible, but leaves the decision with you? Or a God that loved you enough to make certain you would be his? Which one is more compelling? Now to make this crystal clear, think about this in human terms. Here's one, man on one, here's one man who wants to get married. To who does he want to marry? Well, nobody in particular, just whoever will respond. Then there's another man who sets his love on a particular woman and then pursues her, overcoming every obstacle, which is more compelling? Well, that's what Calvinism is about, a God that sets his affection on certain individuals and then overcomes every barrier and obstacle to make certain that they're his. And these points have generally become called the five points of Calvinism. Now, I hope that you can see how important this is about how God saves us. And, but remember, we don't want to adopt a belief, a belief system and then reshape the Scripture to fit it. Okay? We are not of those who say that God must meet our criteria. Okay? Our beliefs about God must be script, shaped by Scripture. Anything that is not shaped by Scripture needs to be 86th right away each of us should resolve in our hearts and minds that the scripture, not a church or any other institution, not a belief system, sola scriptura, is the final word. Okay, And it is my firm belief that the doctrines of grace accurately explain how God operates in our salvation. Now, I need to let you know, I need to let you in on the fact that I didn't always believe this way. I was raised in an Arminian and continued in that belief system until I was about 30. But when I was in confronted with the doctrines of grace it just became too obvious. But I it wasn't it also wasn't an easy change. My old beliefs took some time to get over. The fact was it <sighs> The reason that it's so, it was so difficult for me, I think it probably took me six months to a year to finally get over some of the old beliefs. And that's why it makes me sympathetic towards the people that don't believe it yet. At first, it was hard for me to comprehend. It felt like if my decision wasn't the final factor, that people were just a bunch of robots. Running around doing everything that God programmed him to do. But in the end, I had to accept that just because I didn't understand it didn't make it untrue. But also, this idea that God was absolutely sovereign, that He was in control and He was working all things for my own good, this came to be the most precious part of salvation to me. God is our rock. We don't have to be nervous about anything because he's in control. So, excuse me, when I was deep in the throes of my decision, and this is sometime, I don't know, uh, sometime around 30, I guess. My mom and dad were not happy about it. I, I was home from college. I was staying with them during the summer. They believed, like my church did, that Calvinism was wrong. So one evening, in stealth, they arranged for the pastor of my church to to come over, and then they left. So it was just me and him. Now, this pastor was overall a very good man. I'd learned a lot of good things from him. One thing that he said from time to time was that when a person cannot answer another person's argument, that they will frequently go after the other person's character. So, remember that one for a minute. So, when my pastor arrived, he asked me why I had become a Calvinist. I responded that the doctrines seemed to me to be more consistent with Scripture than what I had grown up being taught. And when I, he asked me for an example, I read him Ephesians 2:8 and 9. I don't know if you can all see this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. Now that's the ESV. So it's a little bit different from what you all have heard. But the same general idea. I told the pastor that although I had memorized that verse when I was in the Iwana clubs, like in sixth grade or something, I was still had no idea what it meant because it didn't make any sense knowing what I, what I had learned in an Armenian church, it didn't make any sense. How is it a gift from God if, I, if I'm the one that decided And I could boast. I could say, well, in the, I saw the goodness of God, so and I chose him, so I could boast in that, right? And I said, by the way, that phrase right there, and this is not of your own doing, what is that referring to? I said, it's referring back to faith. I said, the Bible says clearly it's not of your own doing. Well, the pastor then proceeded to tell me that in the Greek, the word faith could not be the antecedent of that, or this is not of your own doing, because he said there was gender disagreements. And that the Bible is actually saying that the whole idea of salvation was a gift. Well, mind you, that didn't really change the argument in my mind whether faith or the whole ball of wax was a gift, it really didn't make any difference. It still said you couldn't boast about it. But I wanted to adjust what he said about the Greek language. So I took out this book booklet that I had read that said the opposite of what the pastor asserted about that agreement. And while I was no Greek scholar, the guy that wrote the pamphlet was... And he said that in the Greek, faith had to be the antecedent of that. So the pastor took the booklet from me, and he sat there reading it, looking up every so often, it had to be 15 minutes, just looking at the book, looking up, looking at the book, looking up. And then finally he plopped the book down on the table, and he said, Well, this author has to be the most arrogant and incompetent interpreter of Greek I've ever read. And I just looked at him and said, that sounded like an attack on character. Well, after he turned about five shades of red, he left, and he never talked to me about that again. (laughs) Now, one of the books I read that began to turn the tide for me was The Sovereignty of God by Arthur Pink. And he was a a 1920s theologian, and he summed up very well why the Arminian view is inconsistent with Scripture. I'm going to read one excerpt now and then another later. To say that God the Father has purposed the salvation of all mankind, that God the Son died with the expressed intention of saving the whole human race, and that God the Holy Spirit is now seeking to win the world to Christ, when as a matter of common observation, it is apparent that the great majority of our fellow men are dying in sin, and passing into a hopeless eternity, is to say that God the Father is disappointed, that God the Son is dissatisfied, and that God the Holy Spirit is defeated. We have stated the issue boldly, but there is no escaping the conclusion. To argue that God is trying his best to save all mankind, but that the majority of men will not let him save them, is to insist that the will of the Creator is impotent, and that the will of the creature is omnipotent, to, To throw the blame as many do upon the devil does not remove the difficulty, for if Satan is defeating the purpose of God, then Satan is almighty, and God is no longer the supreme being. Now those are strong words, and Arthur Pink is known for his strong words. But was he right? And one of the arguments that Arminians make against Calvinism is that it isn't fair. God chooses some and he passes over others. Now here's what Arthur Pink has to say about that. During one of the feasts of the Jews, the Lord Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He came to the pool of Bethesda, where lay a great multitude of impotent folk of blind, halted, and withered, waiting for the moving of the water. And among this great multitude, there was a certain man which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. What happened? When Jesus saw him, he said unto him, Do you want to be made whole? And the impotent man said, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but when I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. So, why was this one man singled out from all of the others? We're not told that he said, Lord, have mercy on me. There's not a word in the narrative that intimates that the man possessed any qualifications which entitled him or gave him special favor. Here then was a case of the sovereign exercise of divine mercy. For it was just as easy for Christ to heal the, the whole multitude as this one certain man. Here there was probably hundreds of people sitting, uh, you know, waiting at this pool that were, that needed to be healed, and yet Christ just singled out one. Again we say, what an illustration and exemplification of Romans 9.15, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Okay, so... That was just a little introduction to the introduction. So now let's get into the doctrines, and we're going to start with a three thirty thousand foot overview of Calvinism. Now it's extremely important that you see the direct line between these five points and the Bible's teaching on the gospel, because where we where we see the, uh, these doctrines and uh, how we see these doctrines has a lot to do with how we see the atonement, regeneration, assurance, and worship. So somewhere along the way, and nobody knows exactly where, the five points became came to be summarized under the moniker tulip. And we'll go through how that works. Now it isn't perfect, and there's been plenty of people who've tried to change it or improve on it. But for our purposes, I think it's gonna do just fine. And I actually like the order, of these, because I think it, it, it helps. It, it actually takes us through the process in somewhat of the way that it happens. So it starts off tulip. First, the T is total depravity. That means by virtue of the sin nature, natural man is depraved and un, unable to respond to God. He is, as the Bible describes him, dead in trespasses and sin. So that's total depravity. The U in TULIP is unconditional election. God elected or chose those He intended to save, not based on any precondition. Okay. The L is for limited atonement. This is the hardest one for an Armin- Arminian to get over. Limited atonement says that Jesus' sacrifice was it was intended only for those that He elected initially. The I is irresistible grace. God exerted His saving power to overcome our resistance to Him and to draw us to Him. And P, perseverance of the saints. God holds on to His elect so that once justified, they will never be lost." Now, uh, that was just a really quick overview. We're going to go through those a little bit more in detail right now, and then as we progress in the weeks, we'll, we'll take one of these at a time and go into depth. Now, as we go through these points, it's important that we disavow any loyalty to John Calvin, okay? Some of what he taught was probably wrong. As a matter of fact, we know some of what he taught is wrong. But what he taught about the Bible, about salvation, was pretty spot on. Jonathan Edwards said in the preface to a book called Freedom of the Will, I should not take it at all amiss to be called a Calvinist, for distinction's sake. Though I utterly disclaim dependence on Calvin, or believing the doctrines which I hold because he believed and taught them and cannot justly be charged with believing in everything just as he taught." So, we should have that same mindset, is that we like what he taught in terms of our salvation, and we can be called Calvinists just to distinguish ourselves from the other side. But we're not going to say that we believe everything that John Calvin wrote or taught. Now, let's go back and summarize these again The reason is, and we're doing it this way, is I want you to become very familiar with these five points. So let's do it again. And I'm gonna draw on John Piper a lot for this because he was one of the main teachers that helped me get over some of the sticking points that I had when I was making this decision. So total depravity. Our sinful corruption is so deep and strong that it makes us slaves to sin. We are morally unable to overcome our rebellion and blindness. This inability is total. We are utterly dependent on God's grace to overcome our rebellion, to give us eyes to see, and effectively draw us to the Savior. This is why the Bible says we were dead. Unconditional election, God's election, is an unconditional act of grace given through His Son, Jesus Christ, before the world began. By this act, God chose before the foundations of the world those who would be li- delivered from bondage to sin and brought to repentance in saving faith. This choosing was unconditional because it was not based on anything in the chosen people that made them deserving. Limited Atonement The atonement of Christ is sufficient for all, but effective only for those who trust him. It is not limited in worth or sufficiency to save all who believe, but the saving effectiveness of the atonement is limited to those for whom salvation was prepared. Irresistible Grace This means that the resistance that all humans exert against God is overcome by God at the proper time. Perseverance of the saints. All who are justified will win the fight of faith. They will persevere in faith and will not surrender finally to the enemy of their souls. This perseverance is the promise of the new covenant obtained by the blood of Christ and worked in us by God himself, yet not so as to diminish, diminish, but only to empower and encourage our vigilance, so that we may say in the end, I have fought the good fight, but it was not I, but the grace of God which was was in me. So that's Calvinism in a nutshell. The argument really comes down to this. How much involvement and control does God have? Two, what effect did Adam's fall from grace have on him, not to mention the whole human race? Are humans left with enough good in them to allow them to make a choice for God? Or did the fall leave everyone with an absolute aversion to God? And three, if the latter... If we have an absolute aversion to God, then how did God remedy that? Now, if you're tracking with what the Bible says about God's sovereignty, then you might be struggling with this seeming contradiction between the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility. If God controls what happens at every level, then how are we responsible? We're going to delve into that more as we go through the five points in future weeks. But for now, I want to stress that just because we don't fully understand something doesn't make it right or wrong. We have only to look to the apparent contradiction of the Trinity, three in one. None of us understands that what we accepted as truth. Take, for instance, what the Bible says about the crucifixion. Listen carefully to these two passages, and I want you to listen carefully to who caused and who's responsible. Acts 2, 22 and 23, Peter's talking to the Jewish leaders, and he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested to by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. In one sentence you see God's control and man's responsibility. He goes further in Acts 4, and the disciples had just been released from prison after having preached the gospel. And verses 23 to 28 contain part of their prayer of thanks. It says, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they had heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, who Who through the mouth of the father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against the Lord's anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So these verses make it clear that also God had decreed Christ's crucifixion and that every single point would be carried out just like he decreed, that the people who did it were still held responsible. So I hope this kind of whets your appetite for what's going forward. We're gonna we're gonna start off next week by delving into total depravity. It might take more than one week, um, and it might not. So, Lord, we thank you again for for the opportunity to study who you are and the way that you save us, and we do we do thank you for our salvation, Lord. Lord, help us as we go into the church service today that you will give us. Mind frames and hearts set on worshiping you, and Lord, help us to put out, put everything else away from our minds now, and just center on worshiping you for who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.